The defining episode of Parshas Shlach is in fact one of the most cataclysmic events in all of Jewish history, and that is of course the Chet Ha'amaraglim, the sin of the spies. And yet, despite that characterization, when you read the actual psukim, at least on the surface, it's not at all clear what was the sin, and who sinned, the people, the spies, both. In fact, there are a number of different approaches in the Mefarshim to this question. Rashi, at the beginning of our Parsha, basing himself on comments of Chazal, in the Medrash and in the Gemara, explained that the people showed a lack of faith in the very request for the spies and their mission. The very fact that they asked for spies showed a lack of faith in a Baruch Hu, who had already promised them that they would go into the land, that the land was amazing, they had already seen what Hashem had done in Mitzrayim, and yet they felt the need for the spies. That showed a lack of faith. Nevertheless, Rashi concludes that despite the fact that Hashem already had reason to punish them right there and then, he went through with the charade, as it were. Hashem went through and allowed the spies uh, to go on their mission, at least on the hypothetical possibility that they would not make the mistake any worse, and in fact, hopefully give a good report, and the people would go into Eretz Yisrael the way they were supposed to. Of course, that allowed for the possibility that the nation would double down and make their initial mistake even worse, and not want to go in, which of course is the tragic end that in fact occurred. But the basic approach of Rashi and Chazal is a very request for the spies, irrespective of the mistakes or differences in their actual report, but the very request already showed a lack of faith on behalf of the entire nation. Ramban, in a very, very lengthy piece here in the beginning of Parak Gimel, disagrees with this and says quite powerfully and uh, passionately that there's nothing wrong whatsoever with asking for sending spies. It's in fact a normal reconnaissance mission. We have other examples in Tanakh where this was done. It was clearly not problematic in those examples, including when Yoshua himself eventually conquers the land and sends his spies in advance. In fact, Moshe had hoped that once the people were sending in the spies, perhaps they'd come back with a very positive report which would get the people excited about going into Eretz Yisrael. What could be bad? Moreover, says Ramban, the basic initial report, the actual facts as they were reported, were not problematic. They were accurate. Were they sent back, asked the Ramban rhetorically, were they sent to bring back a false report? Were they sent to lie? So what was the problem? And for that, the Ramban answers, it wasn't that they went or in their initial words, but rather that after their initial report, they started editorializing. And instead of just being objective reporters of the facts, they in- injected a certain subtle and subjective bias when they implied or claimed that despite all the good points of the land, because of the current inhabitants being too mighty, they wouldn't be able to overcome the land. And the pivotal, pivotal pasuk for this is pasuk chavches, when after they themselves report back about the incredible land, it's peros and it's flowing with milk and honey, but then they say, Ephes, but... This people is too mighty, and the cities are betsuros, gedolos, ma'od. The cities are very fortified, and the people are giants, etc. Ephes, but, that one word, says Ramban, changed everything. They went from being a mere reporter of facts, but to interjecting their own personal bias. But, despite what I've just reported to you, now let me add my personal opinion. Ephes. We cannot do it. And Ephesus doesn't just mean but. There are other words that say but. Ephesus is almost a very negative. Ephesus is nothing. 
we're nothing, there's no way we can do it, there's no chance, FS, but, despite how great the land is, we cannot do it. That Kedesh Yitzchak gives a mushal that's as if a, a master sends a servant to the factory to check out the various linens to see what their material is, what their cost is, what their size is, what their color is. If he just reports the facts and then lets the master decide if he wants to go ahead with the purchase, that was his job. But if instead he reports the basic facts and then adds, but it's this and this color, but it is this and this price, that very single word of but has changed his report from being merely repetition of the facts to in fact editorializing and implying, but maybe you don't want to get it, maybe it's not the right color, maybe it's too expensive. That initial subjective bias that was infecting the report, the veneer of that completely comes off and they go full advocate against going in in response in the next wave of the discussion, the next stage of the discussion, after Yehoshua tries to salvage things, excuse me, Kalev tries to salvage things by saying that we can do it. We can do it. Yachol nuchala. But instead, in Pasuk Lamed Aleph, they respond, Lo nuchala alos el ha'am ki chazakumimenu. We cannot do it. Instead of just reporting the facts of the land, or even just subtly having a bias, here, as I say, the veneer comes off. The It's not even a pretense of objectivity. Now they're in full advocacy mode, says Ramban. This was the problem. The Akedis Yitzchak offers his own, perhaps you could say, third interpretation as well about the fundamental flaw uh, of the people. And that is, he suggests that when they were rejecting going into Eretz Yisrael, they weren't just rejecting Israel. What they really rejecting was HaKadosh Baruch Hu and the holy way of life that Eretz Yisrael would represent. When they said, Lo nucha la'alos, what they meant was not just that you don't want to go up to Eretz Yisrael, but rather they didn't want to go up, they didn't want to scale the heights of spiritual ambition, the latter, the vehicle of which, is Eretz Yisrael. They didn't want a life that had a beautiful life, but one with limits of the Torah. They wanted a life that had no limits. And that's what they meant when they said, Benashuvo Mitzrayma. They wanted to go down to a land of Tumah and no limits. They preferred an easy and secure life, or what they seemed, thought was easy and secure, over the more ambitious and clearly demanding, but ultimately more meaningful life of Eretz Yisrael. This was their Bechia Shalchinam, as Chazal say. They cried for nothing, and as a result, it has become a Bechia Lodoros, as throughout the generations this remains our pattern, so often choosing short-term relaxation and apparent security over the long-term investment in the true security and spiritual advancement. In the aftermath of the Cheda Egel, after HaKadosh Baruch Hu's wrath has been aroused, he wants to destroy the whole nation. Moshe begs him not to destroy the whole nation in one fell swoop. Hashem yields and says, okay, I won't do that, but this generation will not go in, it will not be successful in seeing the land of Israel. I will kill them off in the Midbar. However, says Hashem, Perak Yedalad, Pasuk Havdalad, Avdi Kalev, he will be different, my servant Kalev. Ekef HaSaruach HaCheresimo, he had another spirit within him. And as a result, he followed me. He didn't do the wrong thing. And as a result, I will reward him, says Hashem. I will bring him into that land of Israel. And his descendants will inhabit that land. Wonderful, well-deserved, clearly for Kalev. And yet the Pasuk brings out, really raises two obvious questions. The most obvious one being, what happened to Yoshua? Why is he not mentioned here at all? Why is he ghosted? 
After all, it wasn't only Kalev. There were two heroic spies. Ten bad ones, but two good ones. Not only Kalev. What happened to Yoshua? Why isn't he mentioned for a ward here in this Pasuk? And secondly, as Mepharshim already starting with Rashi note, what is this ambiguous, somewhat confusing, vague phrase, Ruach Acheres Imo, that Kalev was possessed by another spirit? What exactly does that mean? And if it merely means that he did the right thing as opposed to the wrong thing. Well, the very next phrase in the Pasuk is, the Amali He followed me. He followed God. So that can't be what Ruach Acheres Imo means because that would all be redundant. So what is going on? What's the Ruach Acheres and how come Yoshua is not mentioned here at all? In a remarkable, remarkable interpretation, the Sefer Trumas Hakri, in the introduction to the Sefer Trumas Hakri, the Trumas Hakri is written by Yehuda Hakohen Heller, a great 18th century Agadol, who is the older brother of the more well-known Aryeh Leib HaKohen Heller, otherwise known as the Ktsos HaKoshen. Yes, this is the older brother of the Ktsos HaKoshen, and in fact, in most editions of the Ktsos HaKoshen, appended to the back is this smaller uh, work known as the Truma Sakri from his older brother. So in the introduction to that Truma Sakri, again, an esoteric somewhat work or complicated uh, work like the more well-known Ktsos HaKoshen on the laws of Choshen Mishpat, commercial law, and the, and the like. So in his introduction there, he's not discussing the technical details of halacha, choshen, mishpat. He's discussing very beautiful and profound uh, hashkafic and agadic ideas. So there, towards the beginning of the introduction, the Truma Sagri gives the following explanation. He says, we know from Chazal, Rashi already mentioned it at the beginning of the Parsha in Pasuk Gimel, that Moshe, at the outset, before the mission even began, Moshe Davin for Yehoshua. As Rashi tells us from Chazal, Moshe Davind, a short but powerful and poignant tefillah, Ka Yoshiacha Me'atzas Meraglim. Moshe had a premonition that bad things would happen, and he davins to Hashem that you should save Yehoshua from this terrible uh, idea that the Meraglim, the bad Meraglim, are going to have. And as a result, in fact, his tefillah is successful, and Hoshea, his given name, is changed permanently and forever to what we now know him as Yehoshua, that extra yud symbolizing that God was with him, and in fact explains the Truma Sakri. What this means is that when Yehoshua went into Eretz Yisrael with the other Meraglim, he was totally protected as a result of Moshe's bracha. He had no Yitzhara. He had no temptation to follow them, the Meraglim. He couldn't even fake it if he wanted to. He was completely separated from them, emotionally, psychologically, totally impervious to the other Meraglim's design and evil plans. However, Kalev's situation was quite different. He never got a bracha from Moshe. Why he didn't? Separate question. But he never got a bracha, and therefore he entered the land of Israel without the siyat of Shemai, without the divine protection that was, that was protecting Yehoshua. And therefore, says the Truma Sakri, in fact, without that, it was hard for him. He was tempted. He may have felt the pressure to go along, to get along. After all, all the other Meraglim, ten of them, are pushing him, pressuring him. And whatever reasons they were tempted, he may have been tempted as well. He struggled with this, says the Truma Sakri. That's why Chazal tell us that on his own, he separated from the group and decided to go to Hebron and to the Maras HaMachpela. And he davened there that he should be able to be successful and avoid the temptation. He was successful. But the reason he went to Hebron, the reason he had the daven, was because he was feeling tempted. He was struggling with what was the right thing to do. As a result, says the Truma Sakri, by him overcoming his temptations, the pressures, and his struggles, he overcame an incredible thing, 
Gidola. It was an incredible accomplishment that despite the temptations and pressures that he did feel, unlike Yoshua, he was able to overcome them. That, says the Truma Sakri, is the Pshat in our Pasuk, Ruach Acheres Imo. What does that mean? He was possessed of another spirit? Yes, he felt you know, had a spirit, so to speak. There was an intuition, an instinct within him to do the right thing. But Ruach HaCheresimo, he also had another spirit inside of him, tempting him, pulling him to the dark side to do the wrong thing. He was struggling with two different things. He had a Ruach HaCheres. Therefore, it was hard for him. He struggled. But because he overcame that, that was an incredible, incredible accomplishment. And that, why he's, why, that is why he deserved this special reward to be singled out by HaKadosh Baruch Hu as the Truma Sakri concludes, Lafum Tsara Agra, because he struggled more, he had a greater reward. And that's why that's what Ruach HaCheres means, and that's why Yehoshua is not mentioned here, because Yehoshua did the right thing, but really had no temptation, had no Yetzirah to overcome, and therefore did not have a great struggle. It wasn't a great accomplishment, therefore does not, does not deserve any special reward. And what we see from here is the Mila and the virtue of the struggle, of religious struggle. Now, we don't go looking for struggle, we don't go looking for tests or temptations, but nor should we be scared off by them, nor should we be depressed if we see ourselves struggling. After all, that is part of religious life for almost everybody. Very, very few people are Yehoshua. We're not really even supposed to be. But we can all be Kalev. We all have a Ruach HaCheres. We all have our temptations. We all have our struggles. But through our own efforts, and that includes davening, like Kalev modeled for us, we can overcome those temptations. We also can be Moshel Benafshenu, and that will truly be a great accomplishment and Avodah Gidolah. The dominant storyline in our parsha, of course, is the Chet Hamaraglim, the cataclysmic sin of the spies and their negative report about the land of Israel, the Jewish people accepting that report, and Hashem's very harsh punishment, causing the Jewish people to wander in the desert, ultimately for 40 years, where virtually all of that generation dies out, before eventually Yehoshua leads the Jewish people into the land of Eretz Yisrael. Well, there is much discussion about the various nuances of the Psukim regarding exactly what was wrong with what the Meraglim said and the Jewish people's response, and all of those are important discussions, but certainly if one takes a step back, it's clear that the gist and the message of the Torah and Chazal is that the Meraglim and the Jewish people failed to fully appreciate not only Hashem's promise, but specifically what makes Eretz Yisrael special and a unique place and the destiny of the Jewish people. And therefore, this Parsha is a good opportunity to survey some, a very small sample, of the incredibly voluminous number of Mamari Chazal that speak about the importance and centrality of the land of Israel to Jewish life and Jewish thought. As I said, there are almost countless uh, numbers of statements in Chazal and Mefarshim, but I'd like to focus on a small sample of those and specifically hone in on two different points uh, which are almost mirrors of each other. The first is a number of statements in Chazal that speak in a very positive way about the spiritual potency and benefit of living in the land of Israel. For example, the Gemara, the Psachim, Kufid Gimel Aleph, the Roshalmi in the third parak of Masech HaShkalim, say that anyone who lives in Eretz Yisrael is a Ben Olam Haba, seemingly automatically destined for the ultimate reward in the next world to be someone who inherits and deserves Olam Haba. 
these statements are closely related to the fact that the Gemara in Ksubis, Kofiralaf Amaralaf, says that anyone who lives in the land of Israel is Sharui below Avon, it's as if they have no sin whatsoever. And moreover, that same Gemara says, even if you walk, just walk for Amos in Eretz Yisrael, again, you get promised the ultimate reward in the next world. And finally, just to take one more example, again, of the many, many that we could choose, but let's take one more. The Medrash and Mishle in Parsha Yuzayin says that someone who not only lives but dies in the land of Israel, so that is a unique skula, and that is a very, very holy death, and such a person will have a complete atonement, mechaperes alavonos. All of their sins will be forgiven for anyone who dies in the land of Israel. Now these are taken together, these are incredibly inspiring, uplifting, uh, powerful sources, and certainly as someone who lives in the land of Israel, Baruch Shezachisi, uh, I'm very thrilled to read and learn all of them. Nevertheless, I think if we think about it with a little depth, they raise some obvious problems. First of all, just what's the logic? What's the pshat? It's one thing to say it's a mitzvah to live in the land of Israel, let's assume that for a moment, but why should it be an automatic get-out-of-jail-free card? Anytime you sin, you're automatically forgiven just because you live in the land of Israel, uh, you're automatically guaranteed Olam Haba, you're automatically guaranteed forgiveness. What does any of that mean? Uh, and secondly, it's also contradicted by our knowledge of both history and explicit sukkim. So just to take one example, Yirmiyahu, Perek Bet, Pasuk Zayin, V'tavo, V'titamu, Esaretzi, V'nachlasi, Samtem L'toeva. Right, the Pasuk there specifically has the Navi voice in the Word of God, how the Jewish people have contaminated the land of Israel and turned it into an abomination. Obviously, the Jewish people are being criticized for sinning in the land of Israel. Moreover, most importantly, we know that twice the base of Megdash was destroyed and the Jews were exiled from the land of Israel because of their sins. How do we reconcile these facts and these took him with the aforementioned statements of Chazal that would seem to preclude it. How is it possible that we ever get punished for sinning in the land of Israel if Chazal promised that you won't sin and even if you do sin, you're automatically forgiven? What is going on? So there actually are a number of approaches to understand these statements, but I want to focus on one in particular, that of the great Achron, the Pnei Yehoshua, in his commentary to the Gemara Emesech Tuxubis. And he says that these statements in Chazal that speak about the automatic reward for someone living in Eretz Yisrael we have to understand them with a little more nuance, a little bit more depth. He says they don't refer to anyone who just happens to live in the land of Israel. They specifically refer to someone who lives in Eretz Yisrael, L'shem Mitzvah Yishev Eretz Yisrael. Someone who lives in the land of Israel specifically because he or she wants to fulfill the mitzvah and they are acutely sensitive to the spiritual potential and the special spiritual status and holiness of the land of Israel. Such a person, says the Pnei Yeshua, because of their... In- intention to be spiritually aspirational because of their acute sensitivity to the spiritual potential and power of the land of Israel. So such a person, says the Pnei Yeshua, the innate holiness of the land of Israel, plus the person's mentality combined to make it very, very unlikely that the person will sin in the first place. Moreover, he says, even if someone does sin, either by accident or because momentarily their Yitzhahara got the best of them, nevertheless, because such a person is so motivated for spiritual growth, so acutely sensitive to the holiness of the land of Israel, so such a person is very, very likely to do tshuva right away because they will feel so guilty, so terrible about having sinned in this spiritually uh, advantageous and upperly spiritually mobile place, as says Paneshua, just the fact that he has that mentality and he's sensitive to the spirituality of the land of Israel will make him do tshuva right away. Therefore, says the Paneshua, that's what these statements mean, that if you combine the innate spirituality and holiness of the land with a person's high spiritual motivation and acute sensitivity to the holiness of the land, they're very unlikely to sin, and even if they do sin, they are very, very likely to 
do tshuva right away, and it's all of these ideas which explain these very statements of Chazal. Now to turn our attention to the flip side of that, and that is the fact that the Gemara in Masech Tashubis, same daf, has some very harsh statements to say about the opposite. Someone who lives in Chuzlaretz, Kaldarb Chuzlaretz, is comparable to someone who is Ein Lo Olaha, has no God, or Ki'il Ovi Vodazara, worse, worse, it's as if the person worshipped the Vodazara. How do we understand that? How could it be? Just because I don't live in Eretz Yisrael? Let's assume again that Eretz Yisrael is a mitzvah. Okay, so I didn't do that one mitzvah. But anyone who doesn't live in Eretz Yisrael, it's Kilu Einlo Elohai, has no God. It's Kilu he worshiped the Vodazara. What does that mean? So again, many answers, many explanations, but let's focus on one. The Sefer HaChaim, written by the brother of the Maharal of Prague, of Chaim, Loi, and he says as follows. He says, you have to understand, the Gemara specifically said, Kol Hadar he said this refers to someone who doesn't just happen to live in, in Chuzlaretz, in the diaspora, but someone who has made the diaspora their permanent home. In his mentality, in his ideology, people have given up hope for Gula, and they consider themselves permanent residents of the land of our enemies. Says the Maharal's brother, this happened in his own lifetime, in his generation. And that's what the Gemara meant, Kal Hadar, not just you happen to live, but someone who has a view of a permanent life in the land of in the diaspora, then that a person has a very, very spiritually deficient mentality. The moment of truth arrives, and the Miraglim return from their mission, having spied the land of Israel, and they come to report back to the Jewish people just what they saw, just what they found. And as, of course, we know, the majority of the spies give a very negative and pessimistic report about what they found, and how it would basically be impossible for the Jewish people to be able to conquer the land. After all, they say, Perkid Gimel, Pasuch we are simply overwhelmed by them. The people who inhabit this land are mighty. Moreover, they are huge cities, fortified. We even saw children of giants. The Amaleki are there. The Kanani, they're everywhere. They stretch from the Yam to the Yardane. They're powerful, they're strong, their cities are large and fortified. There's just no chance. Immediately in the next Pasuk, in Pasuk Lamed, Kalev quiets the people, and he says in his famous words of optimism and confidence, Surely we can go up to Israel. We can conquer it. We can take possession over it. We can do it. Of course, the Miraglim are not at all bowed or cowered by Kalev's seemingly pie-in-the-sky optimism, and they respond, Lo nuchalalos. No, actually, Kalev, we can't do it. They are simply stronger than us. Of course, we all know, unfortunately, how the story ends. The Jewish people are crying and complaining, and Hashem gives them the devastating punishment of being forced to wander 40 years in the desert instead of going right in imminently to the land of Israel. In a short but remarkable drasha on these psukim, in the Sefer Eish Kodesh, the Piazetz Nerebi, famed Hasidic Rav in the Warsaw Ghetto, the drushes that he gave in the ghetto during the years of the Holocaust, he asks a very simple question. He says, whatever you'll say about the negative report of the Miraglim, they offered substantive and rational reasons why they didn't think we could do it. The people are just too strong, too many, too mighty. Kalev, on the other hand, never addresses the substance of their points, never speaks on any of the actual uh, substance that the other Miraglim say about the land of Israel and their pessimism. Rather, he just meets their negative report with what seems to be 
naive, pie-in-the-sky optimism. We can do it. But he actually never addresses the concerns and the substantive complaints and report of Muraglin. What is going on? Why doesn't he do that? So says the Rebbe, incredibly, in fact, he was teaching the people then and Jews for all time. This is what it means for a Jewish person to have faith. Not only are we required to have emuna in situations in which there actually is a very plausible, reasonable, rational path and road for our success, those require emuna because there's nothing that's ever 100%. So even when there's a reasonable and rational path forward for success, we have to have emuna and be tachon that it will be successful. Moreover, when we're successful, we have to have emuna to realize that the success came from Hashem. All of that is true, says the Rebbe, but that's not the only type of emuna we have to have. Ragam in addition, he says, even at times where we see no rational, plausible, realistic path forward, there's no way we can in any way reasonably envision a success or a salvation, even then, we also must have absolute faith in emuna, bitochon, that Hashem can, in fact, save us. Moreover, he continues and says, in those very difficult situations, we, Dafka, shouldn't be looking to find some possible long-shot way and path forward. It says if we spend all of our time trying to find a solution which is at best very, very unlikely and really a long-shot, we run the very reasonable risk. That by focusing our energies when the odds are so long anyway of our success, by focusing our energies in those situations on trying to find some solution that we can come up with, we're actually distracting ourselves and may in fact dilute the true and necessary intense amuna that we're required to have. When there's a plausible path forward, implicitly the Rebbe is acknowledging, of course we have to do our hashtadlus coupled with amuna. When the odds are long and there's no plausible path forward, then we have to have full and complete amuna in Hashem. And Adarabha, as he said, it's actually a mistake to try to find shtadlus to come up with, you know, from a 5% possible uh, success rate to a 10% success rate. It's still overwhelmingly long odds. Better, he says, we should have true and genuine emuna. And in fact, he says, it's in those situations, instead of looking for the long shot success, we should say, it's true, we acknowledge the problem. It's true, the people in the time of the Miraglim, literally were very strong. The cities were quite literally fortified. But says the Rebbe, it's not only true then, it could be true at other times in history. Figuratively, we have we come up with challenges of mighty people with fortified cities. And nevertheless, just like Kalev said then, we must always tell ourselves, Alon Alev Yerashnosa, below Sechel, Ubelow Svara. We shouldn't be looking for long shot possible solutions, but rather it's Tafka through our Amuna in Hashem in those moments that we have a much more likely chance of success. This is a short, but as I say, powerful and inspiring drusha, and even devoid of any context, I think it's a perfectly, an excellent uh, illustration of a Hasidic approach uh, with purity of faith to the ideas of Amuna and Bitachon. However, as Professor Henry Abramson uh, notes in his remarkable work, 
Torah from the Years of Wrath, which is a book of history that provides historical context to the Drushos of the Eish Kodesh in the Warsaw Ghetto. This Drusha was originally given on June 22, 1940. Professor Abramson points out that this was shortly after the fall of Paris, the fall of France. The Third Reich was at its height, stretching from the English Channel to the Soviet Union. And despite the worsening conditions, the doom and the gloom in the ghetto, the Rebbe used this opportunity to offer powerful and inspiring words of courage and faith. And his message was clear, not to give the doomsayers in the ghetto, the Miraglim in the ghetto, uh, any respect, but rather follow the words of Kalev, trust in Hashem, and He can save us even in the darkest hour. As the spies begin their mission surveilling the land of Israel, the Pasuk tells us at the beginning of the Sheni Aliyah, Perak Yud Gimel Pasuk Chavbez, Vayalu Banegev, Vayavo Ad Chavron, that they went to the south and Vayavo, he, Lashon Yachid, Vayavo Ad Chavron. And picking up on that change, Vayalu, which is a plural, Vayavo Ad Chavron in the singular, Rashi quotes the teaching of Chazal that at that moment Kalev broke away from the rest of the spies, and he, and only he, Vayavo, went to Chevron, he went to Mars Hamachpela, or he went to Davin, to the Avos and the Imahos, the great forefathers and our matriarchs who are buried there, and he davened to them and he said, Amar lehem avosai bikshu alai rachamim she enatzel me'atzas meraglim. Please help me, give me the schus, give me the strength that I should be able to avoid the pitfalls of what is coming from the Meraglim. He had a premonition, obviously, of the bad report. And this uh, issue, which is a beautiful, agadic uh, image that is depicted by Rashi and Chazal, but it really raises a halachic issue, and that is the idea of not only davening at Kivrei Tzadikim, but who are we davening to? It certainly sounds like from the language of the Gemara, which Rashi is quoting, that Kalev was davening to the Avos and the Imahos. Really, is that allowed? So the first thing we need to acknowledge is that there are a number of sources that do highlight the value and the phenomenon uh, and the positive phenomenon of davening at Kivrei Tzadikim. There's a medrash in Bereshis Rabbah that talks about why Rachel Imenu is buried, not in Mar Samachpela, as we know, but outside on the road, Derach Beit Lechem. Not only because people will pass there and they will daven, but she will daven for the nation. So we have the idea of people davening to her, and her davening on our behalf. Moreover, the Gemara Masech Tatainis, talks about going to the cemetery and asking the Mesim to daven for mercy for us. Even in a halachic context, the Ramah mentions in three different places, both when it comes to Tishabav, Erev Rosh Hashanah, and on that Erev Yom Kippur, that the Minhag is to be marbebetachanunim at the cemetery, to go to the cemetery and increase and have extra tefillot. Uh, the problem, it would seem, from all of these sources, is that they seem to contravene one of the 13 principles of faith, one of the Yugimuli Karim of the Rambam. Whereas the Rambam, in his introduction to the Parish Mishnayis, a Perchelik and Sanhedrin, where he lists the 13 principles of faith, number five is, Hu Haroi Lo'avdo, we should serve, we should daven to Hashem, Vein Roy Lo'avdam, Kedei Liosam Emtsai Lekorva Elav. You don't need to go through any intermediaries. There doesn't have to be any emtsaim l'korva elav. You can go straight to Hashem. You don't go through into intermediaries. And yet here we have all these sources, starting with Kalev in our parsha, who seem to be davening to intermediaries, davening to Mason. What is that all about? What's going on? And the truth is that in a somewhat 
parallel, not identical, but obviously a very, very parallel and closely related topic. Uh, there's a Yerushalmi in the ninth parak of Masech Brachos that also very beautifully and very vividly talks about why we should not be davening to angels. Not talking about dead people, but still a very similar idea. And the Yerushalmi says, unlike with a human king, where you have to go through you know, the secretary, and the secretary has to the secretary, secretary, and the assistant has the assistant, assistant, until eventually you find out if the king will see you or not or will help you. But says the Yerushalmi, when it comes to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, Eynu Kain, in Baal, Adam, Saraf, God forbid you have a, some kind of a crisis, you don't have to daven Lola Michoel, Lola Gavriel, you don't have to go to the angels, you don't have to go to God's assistants or secretaries. Ela Hashem says, Li Hashem directly. So we see this idea uh, is not so simple at all, even before the Rambam, let alone because of the Rambam. Uh, we should note that because of that, we have some prominent examples of Achronim who avoided certain tfilot, certain things we have custom to say because of this issue, at least when it comes to the angels. So for example, the Maharal and the Chasam Sofer both objected to and did not say, Machnisei Rachamim, that Tchina uh, that we have at the end of some of our Slichos during the Yom and the Rhyme period. Moreover, the Rav Chaim is quoted as having the custom not to say the third stanza of the Shalom Aleichem every Friday night, where we say, Baruchuni L'Shalom, we're asking angels to bless us. And again, all these Achronim are saying that we shouldn't be doing these things because it runs afoul of the Skimarin of the Rambam in the 13 Principles of Faith. So how can we understand the sources that we began with, and how can we understand the obviously overwhelmingly common and prevalent Minig Yisrael to actually go and daven at uh, Kivrei Tzadikim. So one answer quoted by the Berhetev, the Kitzer Shachan and the Mishnah Brura, and already preceded by uh, them in the Drashos Haran, is to say that we're obviously not davening to the dead, that's for sure, but rather we daven at a cemetery at Kivrei Tzadikim because that is holy and hallowed ground. And therefore it's a favorable place to daven. As uh, some of the posts can say, it's a makom menuchas ha-tzadikim, there's extra shefa eloki, the Ran says, and therefore it's a good place to daven, but obviously we're not davening to the mace. That's one, I would say, the most minimalist, conservative answer, if you will. A second, kind of what I'll call the middle position, quoted in a number of poskim, including, it's also mentioned by the Mishnabura, the Prima Godim, and that is that we are, of course, davening to Hashem, obviously, directly and only to Hashem, but we're asking Hashem, please, answer our tefillos bizchus, in the merit of the righteous soul and the deceased. Now, of course, you could ask, that's the case. I can ask for zechus avos. I can ask for protectia, a little help because of you know who I know, who my father was, who my grandfather was, as it were. I can do that from shul too. I can do that from my own house. And the answer is, of course, obviously. But evidently, whether it's a psychological or a metaphysical reason, we feel more connected to that idea. It triggers it more. It's more real if we're not just thinking about the tzaddik, asking Hashem to help us in memory of the or in honor of the tzaddik, but dafka doing it at the grave of the tzaddik. And uh, last but not least, a third approach uh, is suggested in a number of poskim, including in the Mat Ephraim, the Darche Tshuva, Ravad Yosef mentions this in one of his tshuvos, and this is, I would say, the most ambitious but yet legitimate approach one could take to this idea, uh, the most permitted, if you will, and that is permissive. We, in fact, according to this third approach, are actually davening to the neshamas of the mace. There is a way that that's possible, and that is to say, if we understand that, of course, they're not the power, the power all comes from Hashem, but rather we're davening them to be a melitz yosher, to usher in, to help, to be an advocate on our behalf, to bring our tefillos before Hashem. Even from this approach, if chas v'shalom, a person thought that that mace or the angel had the power, that obviously would be heretical. But if we're davening to them to help usher in and therefore assist our tefillos, according to this third approach, that is why it is permissible. There's a seeming paradox in the way Hashem responds to the Jewish people after the chet hamaraglim. 
On the one hand, as we know, Hashem wanted to kill the entire nation because of this grievous sin, but Moshe intercedes on their behalf. And then the Torah tells us in Perak Yedal, Pasuk Chaf, V'yomer Hashem, Salachti Kidvarecha. We know Hashem forgives the Jewish people because He says so explicitly to Moshe. And yet, in the very next few psukim, Hashem continues to tell Moshe, but these same people who I've just said I've forgiven, they are not going into the land of Israel because of this terrible sin that they did. In fact, they are going to be punished and wander around the desert for 40 years until they all die out. And only when that generation is gone and a new generation that did not sin with the Meraglim uh, has emerged in their stead, then that new generation, untainted by the sin of the Meraglim, will be able to go into the land of Israel. But what's going on? Didn't Hashem just say He forgave them? Moreover, if you look later in the parak, after the plague that originally initially kills uh, the Meraglim themselves, the people actually go up. They want to let, enter into Eretz Yisrael right away, which would seem to be a very good faith effort of actually demonstrating tshuva. We know that a critical component of tshuva is to be in a similar situation and then do the right thing, even though you had previously done the wrong thing. Well, here the Jewish people are saying, okay, we realize our mistake, we want to go in right now. That's a very demonstrative act of tshuva. Moreover, in that very same pasuk, it says that the people explicitly state why they want to go into the land of Israel now, they admit that they sinned. So we have a kind of a vidui, a hakaras hachet, a maisa of tshuva. Hashem explicitly forgives them on the one hand, and yet, completely confoundingly, Hashem is still nevertheless punishing them and making them wander in the desert for 40 years and die out and not letting them go into the land of Israel. What is going on? So the Dubna Magid and his Sefer, Ohal Yaakov, gives a beautiful explanation to this by way of a fascinating parable, a mushal, which of course is his characteristic style. And the mushal he gives is of a very wealthy man who had a daughter who he wanted to find a shidduch for, and he was proposed two possibilities, either the son of a very rich man who was known to be corrupt and coarse, to put it mildly, or the son of the rabbi who himself, the chassan, uh, potentially the boy, was a very big tamil chacham and a tzaddik. So the rich man says, listen, I have enough money, let me make a shidduch with the rabbi's son. And he tells the rabbi, listen, I'm willing to pay for almost everything, but I want at the very least, you should pay a little bit. Pay for your, your son's clothing and maybe a little jewelry for my daughter. And the rabbi says to the wealthy man, listen, I'm sorry, I have no money, I cannot even do that. And at that point, the wealthy man gets upset. He says, forget it, I'm not doing a shidduch with you. And he goes and makes a shidduch with the other business tycoon, despite his misgivings about the person's uh, corrupt character. A while later, when this man's relatives hear about the shidduch that he made, they are beside themselves, and they prevail upon him that, listen, you've made a humongous mistake. You cannot make a shidduch with this guy. He's so terrible. He's so corrupt. He's so coarse. You don't want to be family with him. He realizes his mistake. He goes back to the rabbi and says, fine, let's do the shidduch, and I'm even willing to renege on my original demand. Now I'll pay for everything. You don't have to do a thing. To which point the rabbi says, I'm sorry, but it's not a shidduch. What do you mean? He explains, because now that I saw that you're willing to walk away from a shidduch with my son and our family for such a lowly person who only represented money, I see that you clearly do not share the same values as our family. You clearly do not value Torah. You clearly do not value Midos and Darcheretz, the values of our family, the values that my son personifies. If you're willing to walk away and to go, of all people, to this other shidduch, clearly you're not a family and this is not somebody that we want to get involved with because we clearly do not have the same values. Similarly, says the Dubna Magid, that's what happened here. Eretz Yisrael is the right place for the Jewish people because of its spiritual properties. And you need to appreciate those spiritual properties. But the very fact that the Jewish people, based on the report of the spies, were willing to reject that and say, we want to go back to Egypt. And for what? Because as we read last week's Parsha, the uh, salty fish and the cucumbers and the melons, because they had peros in Mitzrayim, for that you want to give up Eretz Yisrael? You've shown your hand, so to speak. 
clearly you're not the kind of people who appreciate the holy nature of Eretz Yisrael, and therefore Hashem says, it's not a shidduch. You're not the right people to bring into Eretz Yisrael. Now that you've shown that you don't appreciate Eretz Yisrael, you're simply not appropriate for the land. Maybe technically you did tshuva, in a certain sense, that's why I'm not killing you in a you know, dramatic act right now as a punishment, but we're going to wander around until you die out, because you're clearly not the kind of people who can come into Eretz Yisrael. What emerges from this beautiful interpretation and parable of the Dubna Magid is that part of our interaction within our relationship with Eretz Yisrael is not just from the perspective narrowly of a mitzvah, the mitzvah of Yishev Eretz Yisrael, of living there, the mitzvah of building Eretz Yisrael, of defending and conquering Eretz Yisrael, or even all the mitzvahs that Eretz Yisrael allows us to do, like Shemitah and Shumas and Maestros, etc. But rather there's a specific notion of Chibas Eretz Yisrael. We have to love and appreciate Eretz Yisrael. There's an attitudinal component which cannot be sacrificed. Uh, the Magi doesn't quote this, but it would seem to support his uh, interpretation. Is the pasuk in Tehillim Perkovav V'yamasu Be'eretz Chemda Lohiminu Lidvaro. In that sense, the uh, Tehillim is saying that these this this uh, generation they were moes they rejected they didn't appreciate the Eretz Chemda a land that's supposed to engender. Uh, respect, virtue, love, desire, appreciation. They were moist by that. They didn't respect that. They rejected that. And therefore, that's why they couldn't go into the land of Israel. This idea that Eretz Yisrael also requires an attitudinal approach of chiba is confirmed as well. For example, in the Gemara Subis, well-known, that talks about the various chachamim kissing, literally kissing the rocks and the dirt of Eretz Yisrael, including in the, in, in the city of Akko. And then it tells that Rabbi Hanina would fix the highways, would fix the roads. And Rashi there in Ksubis says, why was he fixing the roads? Machmas chibas Eretz Yisrael. He fixed the roads because he loved the land of Israel. And he didn't want it to get a bad name, a bad reputation. That, oh no, this is a place that has rocky roads, that has potholes, etc. And it all came from the fact that he loved Eretz Yisrael. In halacha context as well, we see this in the beginning of Masech the Gittin, where the Gemara tells us that a get that was written in the city of Akko needs to be treated with various halachic details as if it was written in Chutzlaretz. And the Rishonim all asked, how could you treat Akko, the city of Akko in northern Israel, as being as if it's in Chutzlaretz, when the Gemara Subas, which we just alluded to, says the rabbis kissed the rocks of Akko because clearly it is Eretz Yisrael. What's going on? So one answer given by both the Ritva and the Ramban is that in the time that the Jewish people came back in Ezra and re-sanctified the land, what's known as the Bia Shnia, they didn't resettle and repopulate Akko, and therefore maybe in the time of the Gemara it was missing a certain level of Kedusha. But nevertheless, says both the Ritva and the Ramban, Chibas Aretz Lobatla. The love, the attitude we have to have, even for a city like Akko, which may not have had the full Kedusha in the time of the second base of Megdash, the Chiba, the love, was there and can, always has to be there. So this idea, what you see in the Dubna Magid, is confirmed in numerous other sources, how important it is to have the attitude of Chiba towards Eretz Yisrael. After the Meraglim return and give their report about what they saw in the land of Israel, they are now ready to give their bottom line recommendation. And in Perak Yudgimel, they tell the people, Lo alos el ha'am, we cannot do this, ki chazak hu mimenu, because they are just too strong mimenu. The simple understanding of mimenu is, they're too strong for us, for the Jewish people. However, Rashi quotes from Chazal and Gemara Sota that mimenu actually refers shockingly to HaKadosh Baruch Hu, that they are too strong mimenu for him that these nations are too strong, Hashem will not be able to help us, there are limits to what Hashem can do, He will not be able to defeat these people. This is a shocking escalation, if we understand the Pasuk the way Chazal did, and it really raises two very powerful questions. Number one is, why did the people listen to this? They had experienced with their own eyes such incredible miracles, even before they left Egypt, while they were leaving Egypt, and especially more recently in the desert itself. 
the cloud, the Anan, the Amur Esh, the Be'er for their water, the Mun for their food, their clothing miraculously stayed in good condition in the desert, even grew with them according to Chazal. As the saying goes, who are you going to believe? Me or your lying eyes? You, they saw with their own eyes what Hashem could do. Why would you believe the Meraglim to say all of a sudden Hashem can't do this? He can split the sea, he can defeat the Egyptians, but he can't defeat the seven nations of Canaan. <coughs> and secondly, almost as surprising, is that Kalev, in his response, never mentions this substantive rebuttal, as we just said. Rather, all he says is, We can do it. Why didn't Kalev respond the way we would have? And say, what are you talking about? Hashem did all these other miracles, which we just saw and we just experienced recently. How could you believe such a thing? And why would Kalev not make that very argument? In a remarkable sicha, the Lababa addresses these questions and puts it in the context of a much more profound insight into life and takes a step backward and even raises a more basic question about the Parsha of the Maraglim, which is about the Maraglim themselves. Before we can ask why the Jewish people listen to the Maraglim, why did the Maraglim do it? These were the princes of the nation, tzaddikim, prominent leaders. Why would all of a sudden they have been confused? Why would they have been tempted to think, we can't do this, Hashem can't do it, we don't want to go into Israel, we want to stay in the desert or go back to Egypt. How could that have happened? And the Rebbe quotes from earlier Hasidic sources that fascinatingly interpret that the Meraglim didn't want to go into the land of Israel because they, in a certain sense, preferred the experience and the existence in the desert. In the Midbar, everything was miraculous. Everything was Lamalam and Hateva that had direct connection with Hashem in a unique way in all of human history. They were living in a purely spiritual bubble, and they knew that that would come to an end if, they, if and when they entered into the land of Israel. Then they would be leaving that bubble and going into normal or natural life with work, with war, and they didn't want to go down, as it were, a level. They wanted to stay on their elevated spiritual level in that spiritual bubble. Who would want to leave that in their mind and go to a very earthly existence fighting and farming? Interestingly, the Rebbe suggests that in the Meraglim's direct response to Kalev, when they describe the land as an Eretz Ocheles Yoshveha, a land that eats its people, ask the Rebbe, why did they choose that language? Why not just say, again, it's a hard terrain, the people who are living there are hard and difficult, will be defeated. Why use the term, it will eat its inhabitants? Ocheles Yoshveha. Says the Rebbe, because when it comes to food, the food itself literally becomes one with the person who's eating it. You eat it, you, you digest it, you ingest it, it becomes part of you. So too, they were worried that if we go into the land, the land will eat us, so to speak, we will become one with the land, just like any being does with the food that it eats. And therefore, we will become one with the land, namely, we ourselves will become a type of Eretz, will become too artsy, too gashmi, will become too physical, will become physical like the land itself, will be changing our essence, and that will prevent us from reaching the spiritual heights and highs that we had in the Midbar. So this was the taina of the Meraglim, this is where they were coming from. Perhaps motivated by something positive and idealistic, but very, oh very wrong. Says the Rebbe, you know why they were so wrong? Because the goal of life is to create what the Medrash calls a dira betachtonim, to create a home in this lower world for HaKadosh Baruch Hu. Hashem is already in the Elyonim, in the upper spheres, in the, in the heavens. But to create a world, this world, in the lower world, that is at the same time physical, but can, so to speak, house HaKadosh Baruch Hu, can be a clique, can be elevated, that it's a place that Hashem would want to be, that is the goal of life. 
And therefore, yes, says the Rebbe, there were a lot more miracles and direct spiritual involvement in the desert. But that was the pre-season. That was the preparation for the real work of the Jewish people, for the real work of life, which was only going to start once they entered into the land of Israel. Says the Rebbe, this now answers the questions. Yes, the angels, uh, the, the Miraglim, of course, were aware of the miracles that had taken place previously and currently in the desert. But those, they said, were Lamalam and Ateva. That's unique to when we're in the desert. Who's to say that Hashem will do any of these kind of miracles, or even could do miracles, or could help us when we go into the land of Israel, when we're not in our spiritual bubble anymore, but actually have to have an army and fight? In their mind, in other words, it was either all spiritual or all physical. They could not conceive of a world which remained with the laws of nature, and yet could somehow become holy and leave space, as it were, for HaKadosh Baruch Hu to be involved. And therefore, they couldn't imagine that anywhere other than in the Midbar. And therefore, we also understand Kali's response. He didn't reference those miracles, because Enochanami, he agreed with them in a certain sense, that they weren't relevant. Rather, he says, we can do it. Namely, we can access HaKadosh Baruch Hu, not only in the desert, we can access HaKadosh Baruch Hu even in the world, even in the world of Teva, of nature, and physicality. We can make a dira betachtonim for him. Says the Rebbe, that's the double Lashon that Kalev uses of Alo Na'aleh. That is to say, there are two types of Alios. One when you go above nature, like they did in the desert, but one is through nature, like they are being called upon to do in the land of Israel. Says the Rebbe, this second type of Aliyah, of miracle, is actually higher in a sense. Because the first type of miracle, Lamala Teva, means Hashem is not limited to Teva. But the second one is telling us that Hashem is not limited to Lamala Teva either. He can be either or. He can be above and in nature. He can combine them. That's the greatness of HaKadosh Baruch Hu. And the Rebbe concludes beautifully and inspiringly that he says, in everyone's life there are periods of Midbar and of Eretz Yisrael. There are times where we are directly involved in spiritual pursuits, we're davening, we're doing mitzvos, and then there's our more mundane work life. We have to realize that just like the Jewish people were being taught, even in the midbar, even in the Eretz Yisrael part of our lives, the work part of our lives, we can bring a dira